Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to It's Everything With Me, your hostess, B.B. Sweetbriar. It's here where we try to bring you everything, every time for everybody. And this is this is what, Sunday, November the 8th. I cannot believe that we're already a week into November. I mean, now if you're like I am, what that really means is there's five weeks until Christmas. That's what it really means. And um, five or six weeks. No, no, it's seven weeks. Okay, I'm sorry. I can't count. You guys, you guys are right. Um, but anyway, it's a long time. It's not a long time. And um, so if you haven't done your holiday shopping, I'm sure you're reminded every time you go out now because it is in full force. The holiday season is upon us. Even if it's not even cold where you are, the holiday season is upon us. But welcome to the show. I hope you've had a good week. Um, as, as you all know, we had an election here in San Francisco and in various um, uh, cities and states across the country. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about the results of our San Francisco election in just a little bit. But we do have a couple of guests that will be joining us today. And it's all in, it's all, it's a thespian I was the thespian. You get that lisp in there. It's a thespian uh, show because my first guest will be uh, a um, a a playwright, an actor, a director. John Fisher will be joining me to talk about his current production, his current theater rhinoceros production called Shakespeare Goes to War. And that sounds like a very interesting title, and as I read it, a very interesting play. So we'll talk to him about that. And then later on, we'll be joined by Matthew McKelligan, who's an actor, and he's currently... Um, he's been in some James Franco stuff. I mean, he's, he's an actor, y'all. And um, he's currently in a film that's making the film uh, festival circuit called You're Killing Me. It's a gay uh, horror comedy, horror it would have been perfect for Halloween if you would have seen it then. But um, but we'll bring those on a little later. Right now, I just want to talk a little bit about the results that we had during our, our little election here in San Francisco that I don't think there were many surprises. I, I don't think. I mean, maybe for some there may have been. But I think most of, you know, there were a couple races, uh, are either propositions or um, uh, candidate races that were going to be close anyway. So either way would have been probably expected. I mean, it could have been either way and people would have, were probably fine with that. Um, but the ones that kind of went the way we expected did that. But I think what was surprising on some of them is that those who were expected to win won by, some of them won by a lot. Like, like you know, a, a bigger margin than we than we really thought, and in particular, I want to bring that up since we're talking right now. Is of course the sheriff race here in San Francisco was a big one because um, the sitting or the incumbent sheriff Ross Mercurimi. Um, always, I want to say Mercurimi. I want to make sure I say that correctly, and I may still have got it wrong. Mercurimi. Um, was, um, you know, there was some controversy around his, um, him being in office and really quickly there was some domestic violence that was involved with his wife while he, um, was, while he is a sheriff or was a, the, leading the sheriff's department. And so that has kind of clouded things. Um, and so even during a little interim period, um, when the mayor, um, he had to step down for just a while while he was going through all of this, um, you know, issue legally over the the uh, charges that were brought against him or filed against him. Um, uh, Vicki Hennessy stepped in and 
ran the or led the department and in his absence. And of course, he what he did not lose his job, so he finished out. Um, the time, but um, her leadership, of course, was well recognized, and she won the race. Um, there, there were three actual candidates. Um, I think there was one write-in or something like that, or a, a few. But um, the the race was not close at all. Um, she won sixty-one percent over thirty-three percent, and you know that's a t- double. I mean, she pretty much. You know, and I thought it was going to be at least a little closer than that, even though. I was under the impression that she would eventually be um, be the the victor in that. So Vicki Hennessy will be our new sheriff, and um, so congratulations to her victory um, there. Um, and th- of course, we talked about that in our last week's show, and that's, I'm going to kind of hit upon the things that we talked about last week. Uh, the other race that we um, focused on in my discussion with Sean Sullivan, who is the political columnist for Gloss Magazine here in San Francisco, was the City College Board of Trustees race. And um, we had a couple of um, people who were running who happened to be members of the LGBTQ community, and we had all figured would be the, the front runners um, of this race. However, Wendy Aragon, who has won or has run for a, a seat on the board before, didn't do so badly. Um, she has, she's never won, but she didn't do too badly um, again in, in this race. But the victor, uh, basically amongst the two front runners that we figured were uh, Alex Randolph and Tom Temprano. Um, and the victor in the race was Alex Randolph. And um, again, I thought the race was going to be a little bit closer than it was. Um, Alex brought in almost 48% of the vote um, to Tom's almost 24%. Again, quite a bit, almost double, again, um, uh, the uh, the margin in the votes there. So, um Alex was the incumbent, is the incumbent, because he was appointed um, by Mayor Lee um, in the position that he has uh, on the seat now due to a a vacancy that occurred during the board member's term. Um, So congratulations to him to continue to serve on the board, and that is to Alex. So congratulations to him. Now, a couple of measures or propositions that we we, um, looked at on the show last week were two, um, um, I don't know if they were heated battles, but they were definitely battles that had a lot of attention. And the first one was Local Measure F, which deals with the short-term residential rentals um, tr- limitations, I guess is the big way to put that. There were some uh, some heavy limitations on basically, to be real honest, basically the Airbnb thing. Um, and um, limitations to how long people could rent out their rooms and their homes or their homes um, on short-term rentals and definitely eliminated completely in the measure the um, use of short-term rentals on in-law quarters that some homes here in the city have. Well, that measure was defeated and um, came in at 55% no vote to a 50 Forty-five percent yes vote. So we didn't we didn't carry that one on. And I know, you know, that was a heavy fight. A lot of money was spent on that one. But um, so we kind of look at it because you know how what happens on things like this. This measure was brought forth as we discussed last week, um, basically because they tried to resolve some of this stuff at the supervisor level and 
were unable to do that. So, of course, the city takes, you know, when that doesn't happen, when it doesn't happen in, at government level, we take it to the, we take it to the people. And that's where the people um, voted on that measure. And the other measure, a uh, local measure, was um, Measure I, which would have suspended um, uh, market rate development, both business as well as um, residential development in the Mission District here in San Francisco. Um, we've seen a lot of market rate building in the Mission, which I happen to be a resident of, um, so I can speak from knowledge that it seems like in every other corner, if not every corner, there's um, a mid-rise going up. And um, uh, the measure would have allowed suspension for 18 months while groups that be would develop a, a plan to address um, the housing needs, more specifically low-income housing needs of the area that would help hopefully keep um, residents that live here now um, in homes in the area and uh, allow for some others to maybe live in. But we've definitely seen excess of many people because of their inability to afford housing in the Mission District. Um, so that would have suspended some, um, some or given some time to help develop a plan um, around um, affordable housing in the Mission, Mission District. And that measure also failed at um, a 57% no vote uh, to a 40, almost 43% Yes, vote. Now, overall, we did have quite, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm not a, I'm not a real good, um, don't have a lot of information on what past poll or past turnouts are for when it's just a non-presidential or a non-federal race, so to speak. So, um, and this is a non-presidential election. Um, so, you know, I don't know how high the turnouts generally are during that, but... Um, we had about a 30% turnout of all registered voters. I thought that might be kind of, I thought that might be higher than what it normally is. I don't know. Um, but I thought what was interesting is we almost had a split down on how many of those were people who actually went physically to the polls versus people who did vote by mail. I was a vote by mail person. Um, but it was almost split down the middle, uh, a total of 132,000 or so votes. Basically split down the middle, 66, 60, you know, thousand people did, you know, on each side of that, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, that vote by mail thing is kind of picking up some steam. And it is a good way to get more people to actually vote, I think, because I think that's part of why people don't is trying to get to a poll for particularly low income people. Um, people who don't have that, you know, people who might be physically challenged and have access to transportation easily. Um, or somebody to, to help get them there, that that is a good way to do it. And I, those numbers show that that's on the rise, I think. And um, I know I took advantage of it just because of the timing constraint. And you have a lot of time before the, the election to get it in, and you definitely have up until election day to get it postmarked in the mail, or you could just drop it by. If, you, if it wasn't the fact that you could, you could go buy it, but you didn't have the time to stop and vote, you could have dropped it in at a polling um, space as well. So maybe that is the way of the future and we might need to spend more time 
in developing a real good strategy and getting people to vote by mail. Why, why the hell not? You know, that's what I'm thinking. But those are kind of the, the you know, you can go to a lot of different um, websites to get information on the results if you don't happen to have them or want to see some actual counts and numbers and all that. Like I said, er, um, I may not have said it earlier, but um, Mayor Lee did retain um, his spot as the mayor by a big, he had a lot of people running, but really he didn't have any competition. Um, um, But you can go to sfelections.org. That's sfelections with an S at the end.org. And they'll give you the rundown of this past Tuesday's election results. But we're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, I'm going to have John Fisher, who is a wonderful playwright, actor, and director, join us about his current production. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, could I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Well, hello, welcome back. It's me, BB Sweetbriar, here on It's Everything uh, with me, of course. And it is on Sunday, November the 8th. And um, we've been talking, we did talk about a little bit about the elections. And I thought I was going to have my interview with John Fisher to talk about his current production that's running through the Theater Rhinoceros Production Company. Um, and it is uh, running at Thick House here in San Francisco, and that's a, a theater house here on Petrella Hill. 
and it is called Shakespeare Goes to War. And um, But John is not available for us to talk. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what I know about the show, and hopefully um, that will be enough for you to be excited about it to go see it for yourself. Now, the, the show actually started on November 4th, and it runs through November 28th, so it's only, I do believe, 22 per, um, shows. However, on the Saturday shows, there is a mat Saturday matinee as well as an evening show. If you go to... If you go to um, the website, which is www.therhino.org, um, you should be able to um, find out exactly the actual days, the actual times, because there are a couple of days that are going to have shows at 7 p.m. as opposed to 8 p.m. So, um, um, you know, You'll have to go check on those particular ones because there's only a couple ones that kind of deter from the normal day. But this this um, theater production is very unique in that it does cover two periods of time, which I always love those when you have uh, time periods and you get to take a look at something back in time or something that's a little bit more close to present day. This one is in the 70s as well as in wartime of the 40s, and we get a, both of those periods of time on there. I do believe, though, that we've got John coming on the line, and so I'm going to go ahead and bring him onto the show right now. Are we ready for John? Okay. Well, we have John Fisher, who is one of our Glickman and Critics Circle Award winners, which are, of course, very prestigious awards, awards in theater. And he is, as I explained earlier, screenwriter, director, and actor. Hello, John. Hey, baby. How are you? Oh, fine. I, I'm, I, I hope you weren't running to a phone because I don't want to have you winded. No, I'm... Fully unwinded, <laughs> wound up. Yeah, winded and wound up. I love that. The W's, the winded and wound up stage. Well, I was yeah, just telling the people a little, a little bit about the show, just really quickly. Um, you're doing you're another theater, Theater Rhinoceros production, called Shakespeare Goes to War. And this is something that you wrote, as well as You always do the three hats thing. Write it, direct it, and play in it. Yes, I grew up on Mel Brooks and Woody Allen. So yeah, you just... You in just... my tiny way, <laughs> I'm a 70s boy. <laughs> you know? and, you, and you do that, and you always do it quite well. You know, of course, we had Thank you on... You, no, well, we, did, we had you on, on the show last time when you were doing your production of um, the Alan Turing story, uh, Breaking the Code, and, of course, I went That's to go right, see yeah. it, and I... It was... An amazing production, an amazing you, production, baby. which I shared with them, the, the people later. But um, so I'm really excited about this because this one's really special. There's a, a few special things happening in this production, and I'm just going to go hit it right away. It's being held or being shown, played, produced at Thick House, and this house, this theater, is kind of special. It has some special things about it which sparked you actually writing this production. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about the specialness of Thick House and then how it led to Shakespeare Goes to War. 
Well, what we did was we turned everything around. We put the audience on stage and the stage in the audience. And because the architecture of Thick House, we have this huge mountain of risers that kind of soar above the audience. And that's what we're using for the stage so that there's a great location for a battle scene and an escape scene from the prison camp and a suburban high school. And there's this really wonderful architectural element to the production. And it's a play about growing up and being in high school and looking for inspirations and things. And um, it takes place in the 70s, so it also deals with the whole sort of emergent queer movement and how that was struggling with things like the Briggs Initiative, which was the persecution of queer teachers. And it's about a young man sort of finding mentors. So it's about mentorship and how some mentors can help you and some mentors are evil mentors. Mm -hmm. And it's a very exciting, adventurous play set in a German World War II prison camp, and it's set in a suburban high school in the 70s. So it's both in the... Uh, distant past and in the more recent past. Right. And it's about coming of age and growing up and falling in love and imagining adventures in your head. And I think like a lot of us when we were little, we sort of lived in a little fantasy world. And one of my fantasy worlds was Hogan's Heroes. I love <laughs> Hogan's Heroes. I did too. Um, I, I love that. Um, I God, that's really weird that you said that. Um, and um, of course, the tragedy, Robert Crane, right? That was the actor in that's right. Yeah, and yeah. in that one. Um, but I'm really curious because you know you are the writer. Um, why you chose the time frame of 1978, which is actually when the Briggs Initiative um, was hot and heavy in California, and yeah, yeah. and and you know, did you have you know a you know because a lot of times as writers, I know you write a, a play, a, a book, or whatever, and it develops during the process of writing. So I yeah. wanted to know whether or not this was already something that you wanted to focus upon or have be a part of mm -hmm. a play, or did it just come about as you were writing? No, I mean I had a drama teacher who was gay, and in 1978 he was this wonderful teacher, and then we realized later that the whole time he was being our wonderful teacher, he was sort of like under the gun if the Briggs Initiative passed. And it suddenly made me realize, you know, that adults deal with things every day that they don't let on about mm -hmm. because they're responsible adults. And he was just this very nice gay man who never, he never said anything about being queer. He never corrupted any of us. He would never even do that. He was just a great teacher. So that was the first inspiration for the play, sort of a tribute to my wonderful drama teacher. And then I found out in talking to him that he had been in a World War II prison camp. And so he had sort of this whole Hogan's Heroes path to him. So that's the other part of the play, is his coming of age in this prison camp and his discovering theater in this prison camp. And it's kind of a play about him as much as it is about a young man in the 70s it's a play about his coming of age and his realization that he was queer and then his sort of living through this horrible thing, the Briggs Initiative, which of course didn't happen. I mean, it didn't pass, thank right. God. But I think all of us in high school at the time were like, well, this is weird. I mean, we don't even know that these people are gay other than there's a rumor right. that they're about to be fired because... You know, somebody says, well, we can tell they're gay. And I'm like, well, there are teachers. We can't tell they're gay. I mean, they're just good teachers. Well, so Harry, Harry is the um, character 
wife's name who happens to be the English teacher whom you play, yeah. whom you play yeah. in 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 the um, Shakespeare goes to war. And the character you're talking about the young boy by the name of Jack um, in right. there. Now, you, you mentioned your high school teacher is the inspiration behind Harry. Are you the inspiration behind Jack? Yeah, of course. I mean, Jack, John. Yeah, that's <laughs> and Harry, Harry and Henry. It was your teacher's name, Henry. <laughs> no, actually, Harry. Oh, okay. but, but that, that one. That one's not so well hid. Um, but you know, when I was in high school, I was just a blob. I was just a blob. I was nothing. I was just a blob. I had no personality. And by the time I finished, he'd like given me a personality. He he. He didn't. He didn't make me gay. He made me a theater person, mm-hmm. and he gave he gave me this and a damn good one at that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I had great teachers. I mean, I had really wonderful, loving teachers, and I never know how they do this. These public school teachers. I mean, with six, like 150 students a day to worry about, and yeah, fire some of us. How do they do it? Yeah. So, well, this, um, this play is you know most of the ones that I've seen you in you know, are all intimate. Cast. I mean, they're not. These aren't big productions that you no, work within. Usually, yeah. yeah, you're usually within these real intimate casts where yeah. um, development of characters are, you know, just seem to be so in tune. You know, and I, some, I don't know if that's because I, as as a as a theater goer, I just notice that usually when those casts are just so you know, kind of intimate, three or four people. Yeah. You, get, you get an opportunity not only to develop your character, but with each other as actors, you just become so comfortable and, you know, it just all gels so well. And this seems like because yeah. you have these things going on that are unusual for many of yeah. your audience that are going to come see with having things going on with in audience areas where you don't normally see that, it's probably very important yeah. for you guys to have jailed so well in your characterization so that those other things physically could happen without any hitches. Yeah. No, I always look for people, actors who are open-minded, mm-hmm. talented, willing to work hard. You know, it's like we're going to spend a lot of time together and we have to, it's not so much that we have to become friends, we just have to be able to rely on each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're teammates. I think of us as like a little squad. We're like Hogan's heroes. We're, you know, we're Hogan and, uh, you know, the, the English guy and the French guy. I mean, we're a little group of people who are very different, but we're all working together to, you know, make something happen. And I, I, this, yeah, this is like a very typical group for me. I really, they're good guys and we really rely on each other and we get in the room and we just start cooking. Look, who are some of the, uh, can you name the, the cast that you have with you? Yeah, I have this wonderful actor who I just worked on in Breaking the Code, Kevin Kopp, and then uh, Sean Keon, who's a, a former student of mine. I like to use students that I've worked with because I know them, and he really impressed me as a student, so I asked him to be involved in this project. And Gabriel Ross, who's done a lot of theater in the Bay Area, and I just did a show with, and I asked him to play the lead, to play Jack. And then another student actor, Jesse Vaughn, who, you know, again, it's like when I put like 25-year-olds on stage, it's great to have like a 25-year-old or to have an 18-year-old, you know, somebody who's really that age. And he's very young and very talented and very committed. And so we have this great group of people, some of whom, like me and Kevin, who've been doing theater our whole lives and are in our 50s, and then others who are just starting out. 
And kind, so this kind of nice reminiscent to the, to the play. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and um, you know, there's, some, there's some teaching going on, even within the cat. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of cool how that kind of yeah. works its way around there. And there's a lot of Shakespeare in the show. Yeah. Stretches from Romeo and Juliet and Othello and Coriolanus. And, you know, it's, it really is about the love of Shakespeare and how Shakespeare is like a, a way that we can talk to each other. It's like a lingua franca. It's like music. Yeah. It's something that we can all enjoy. Us English speakers, it's something we all understand. Well, we're, we're running a little short on time, but I did want to first um, real quickly make sure that we give a shout out to your set designer because I know that it was through him as, as well that John Lowe, that you guys kind of came, you want to do something in the theater utilizing these risers yeah. and whatnot. And with his vision yeah. and your vision, you guys kind of have this, this production, which is, is it, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. I can't wait till I get a chance to see it. Um, well, and, John, John and I have done 20 shows together. So this I, is I like... trust him implicitly. Yeah. yeah. He said... You know, we really need to use the theater this way. I was like, great, I'll create a show to do that. Yeah. And well, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. John Lowe is um, incredible, incredible designer and collaborator. So this is Shakespeare Goes to War. Um, again, um, John Fisher has, is on the line, and he's the one who uh, wrote and directed it and um, has a, a major role in it, playing one of the, the leads in, in the play. This is at Thick House, which is configured a little differently than most of our theaters. It gives use to space for the actors within audience areas that we normally do not see in production. So as a, as a theater goer, those of you out there, you're not only going to experience, uh, you're probably going to feel more like a part of the play as opposed to someone outside watching it. Um, so just for that alone, uh, I would say that you should have interest in going to experience that. But knowing John as a uh, playwright and a director, the production itself will be worth the attendance as well. Well, so, thank you, BB. You know, so I look forward to seeing it myself. Again, this is at Thick House here in San Francisco in the Petrero Hero area. Um, you can go online at therhino.org to um, get more information on the dates. It is running, it started November 4th, it runs through November 28th. Um, Wednesday through Saturday, but there's two shows on Saturdays. You have a matinee, correct? Yeah, we're well, Wednesday through Saturday nights with a Saturday matinee, and we have a couple of Tuesday performances. So we're trying to make, trying to make sure everybody. everybody. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So definitely check those dates out because um, you don't want to miss that. So I want to thank you, John, very much for being on the show. We're going to take a big no, we're going to take a little brief commercial break. And when we come back, I'm going to have Matthew McKelligan on the line. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. 
Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to It's Everything with me, your hostess, B.B. Sweetbriar. Um, if you're just joining us, we you missed out on a wonderful interview with our local, um, I don't know, he's our local screenwriter, director, actor. He's wonderful, John Fisher Award winner. And um, with his production um, through Theater Rhinoceros uh, production called Shakespeare Goes to War. And it's playing at Thick House in San Francisco, which began November 4th. Um, it's, at, on, it's in Petrero here, the area, Petrero Hill. But you can go to therhino.org for more information on tickets and dates and all of that. But it is running through November 28th. Now, uh, there's a question I don't know if you've ever pondered, and that is, do you know or have ever thought of what the qualities... <laughs> You're gonna laugh when I finish this. What the qualities you what qualities you need in order to be a successful serial killer? <laughs> I know I laughed when I wrote it, and I'm laughing as I speak it. Um, but you know, th- there are there are obviously some not all many of them get caught, so they're obviously not too successful. But um, but there are some that there are some qualities. But however, so I asked, or you know, I asked an actor, the actor Matthew McKelligan, that question. And by the way, Matthew, um, you may be familiar with because he was in James Frankel's film of high acclaim, Interior Leather Bar. But um, he also um, Matthew, that is, finds a way to be likable and charming while he plays a dysfunctional, sinister serial killer in the Jim Hansen gay romantic comedy horror film. Now, that's a whole lot. Gay romance comedy horror film called You're Killing Me. So, again, he plays a dysfunctional, sinister serial killer. Now, You're Killing Me has been given the moniker as a future campy horror film classic, and it does have a lot of those qualities that you find that people just kind of keep gravitating to with like the, the uh, uh, a Halloween uh, classic that you want to keep playing every year and you have parties built around it because it does have a lot of humor to it. But as we get into the interview, I think um, Matthew will probably say that it's probably more heavy on the gay than it is on the horror, but, but um, we'll let him address that. Um, but Matthew has had his hands full playing flawed and slightly evil-doing characters. That he also plays a homewrecker in the award-winning web series called Eastsiders. Um, now it's, it's in its second season on VMEO On Demand. A self-described likable self-deprecator, Matthew was able to find a connection with his sinister roles as far-reaching as that may appear on the surface. Um, so I have a pleasure to um, give to you one of our pre-recorded interviews with Matthew McKelligan. Hey, this is Matthew. Hey, Matthew, this is BB. Nice to meet you, BB. Well, it's great to have you on their line to talk about all that you're doing, in particular your your new film, uh, You're Killing Me. Yeah, I'm happy. I love the movie, so I'm happy to talk about it. Happy what? to talk about whatever you want. Well, I think it's kind of interesting because when I always look at descriptions of certain films, such as this being called you know, a horror comedy film, because I always think horror and comedy is kind of an oxymoron. I I don't think comedy when I think horror, but that's what this film is, is, right? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it falls under four genres, technically. So it's 
a comedy horror. It's a gay film, and it's romance. And I would say out of all four of those, if you had to circle away one that's least applied, I would actually say gay. Okay. <laughs> Probably <laughs> because, because comedy and horror always are built into that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that why? Is that why? Is that why it's... it's <laughs> I guess because we're so self-deprecating. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well I, but you're in also a comedy um, web series as well, so that definitely gives me an idea that that's kind of something in, in your acting forte that kind of comes second nature to you, would you think? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel very comfortable doing comedy. Mm -hmm. um, I do get cast um, more and more in finding in some dramatic stuff. Just because I, I guess I always look sad. <laughs> um, puppy eyes. You have the puppy eyes. I'm really good at looking sad. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I've, I've auditioned before for roles where it's like, I'm supposed to be a dick, like really aggressive and mean. And that doesn't really, I, I just can't do it convincingly. Yeah. I just, it's not me. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. I'll well, take that as a compliment. Yeah, sometimes we can't, you know, sometimes things that we have to play or act is a little bit too far-reaching, and that might just be one of them for you um, on that. But in this movie, you do play a killer, a serial killer. That's pretty That's pretty sinister. It is pretty sinister, but I am more or less meant to be the likable person in the movie. And, and that, isn't so that, that, that kind of like... side with me, and everyone who gets murdered kind of deserves it. <laughs> That's kind of like saying you're Susan Lucci or something, somebody that we love to hate, or just really, we just we love you in this film. We, we love your character in this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my character, I'm the only person in the movie that tells the truth mm -hmm. and who really devotes his attention to anything because everyone's constantly distracted with their own lives. Mm -hmm. and, and so they don't really see what's really going on. In the film. They, they really don't see the truth that you're telling because of their self-absorption of what's going exactly. on? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is, it, is this kind of like then, because um, it appears as if, you know, this is kind of your day-to-day -day life type of a film, meaning that there's nothing um, outside of you being a serial killer, there's probably nothing uh, extraordinary with the other things that are happening in the film. It's kind of similar to kind of how they made Serial Mom uh, um, a um, right. comedy film where everything around her was very normal, you know, things that we would normally see in, in our day-to-day -day lives, except for her killing spree. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we've been um, compared to Serial Mom. We've been compared to American Psycho a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, that's, I would say that that doesn't really apply as much, American Psycho. Um, and then, I get asked all the time what, which serial killer, I guess, this is based off of. Yeah. Um, that's hard to say, too, but there's kind of a Ted Bundy um, kind of flair to my character mm -hmm. in terms of just being, like, you know, the kind one that was invited in and you would never suspect and he's charming and that's me. And, and that's probably... Well, you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably not too 
far off the mark in real life. I mean, if we look at all the, you know, Bundy, we look at some of these these real-life serial killers, they all kind of presented themselves as being kind of likable and people we would normally, yeah. you know what I mean? It, it, that's probably, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything that you aspire to to be a successful serial killer, but I think that might be one of the things to be one, <laughs> is to be definitely yeah. likable and people... <laughs> Well, blend in, yeah. right? So, so I think you're playing it to the right, to the hilt, to the right, you know, the right degree. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember, I think when I was in San Francisco two times ago, you guys had some kind of guy that, I think he was like going after guys on Grindr or Scruff. Oh, I I, yeah. I vaguely remember that. I've lived there 20 years, but since I don't use either one of those, I probably dismissed it as it wasn't going to affect me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, oh, okay, I'm safe. Yeah, but it is. And we've had our we've had our you know our feel of in Northern California of um you know remember way back when was it the Zodiac Killer and oh, yeah. things of those nature. So um, we can all. I'm sure you can tap into a lot of different sources without, you know, having to dig too too deep um, in, in your study of a, being a serial killer. But when you look at this character, which is Joe, right? Joe's the name of your character in... Right. And, and you look at the character that you play in um, um, Eastsiders, they, they both are, you know, kind of likable people, but they're not doing very pleasant things. Um... So yeah, so, they're so, dysfunctional. Yeah, um, are you are you being typecast these days, or is, <laughs> it, is there just a coincidence to that? Um, I think it's just a coincidence. Um, I think, uh, gosh, this is getting deep now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I guess I feel. Uh, in general, in real life, I feel like I'm, I'm a likable person, but I think what people probably like about me um, is that I'm, I'm pretty honest and mm-hmm. I'm pretty uh, dry. I have a pretty dry sense of humor and I'm pretty self-deprecating as well. And I think people always like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you can talk about your flaws. Um, and so... I would say that that Jeremy, you know, on these feathers, he's definitely, he's very likable kind of because he's wounded in a way and he's very open about that. Um, I guess I do relate to that deep down personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't really identify with the people who are just, um, you know, the sociopath actors that mm-hmm. are out there a dime a dozen where you just don't really know when they're being genuine and you don't know what their motivations are. Mm-hmm. I can't identify with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I I got into acting later than most people. Mm-hmm. So, so this, this, I've never been... So I, act, I've just, I kind of fall into things in my life, I so, guess. So acting then... So acting then, unlike a lot of people that we run into in Los Angeles where so many people go to L.A., 
just to find, you know, just to be a movie star, to be, you know, or, or TV star. Yeah. And so you're, you, that wasn't like when you were growing up in your mind, you didn't kind of say, you know, I want to be an actor. That that wasn't a part of... Well, yes and no. So I, uh, I was, I acted as a kid and in uh, junior high, high school, very rudimentary stuff. I mean, I would like write and shoot everything. Every school project I would ask if we could make a video project version of it instead. And I would just have so much fun doing that, mm -hmm. shooting something. Instead of giving a presentation and then I got into community theater. And then when I graduated high school, it was kind of like, okay, time to be realistic. And I, I went to go study architecture. So um, I fell back into acting, actually it was an accident. Uh, here in LA after living here for about five years. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of rejected everything having to do with Hollywood those first five years here. I would never fraternize with actors or, or anyone. I just kind of loathed them. Probably in the same way that all the closeted gays like are so homophobic. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. So I, um, I actually, I got laid off from one of my design jobs where I was actually an employee but technically an independent contractor. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't claim unemployment. And my friend at the time ran a casting service for extras. Mm -hmm. And he said, don't worry, I'll just send you out. Um, you know, you'll make money day by day. It's totally fine. So I did that and that was my first time being on a proper film or TV set. And I, I hated being an extra, but it was very fascinating mm -hmm. at the same time. And um, at the time before SAG and ASTRA, the unions merged, I paid to join ASTRA, which you could do back then. Um, and once I did that, the assistant directors on set would just point at me and be like, hey, we're going to have the girl come talk to you in this scene, and then you're going to walk away that direction. So I was starting to get like more featured Mm-hmm. And then once that kept happening, I figured I might as well audition. <laughs> so I started auditioning, and then that's kind of how I fell into it. Started booking things, and so I still function as a um, designer. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I saw when I Googled, you know, you um, for more information, I saw... You know, Matthew McKelligan is an, an architectural design something, but of course, you know, not thinking that that's probably you because the name is not, you know, an everyday something. No, but yeah. I, I didn't, you know, even think about connecting the two. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because everybody in LA wants to be an actor. Why would they be a designer? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, but, it's, yeah, it's. It's really weird. I think I I feel like this has been me for a long time where I just, it's hard to pick one thing over the other. It's very healthy to have two things to switch in between. Yeah. Um, acting is hard enough as it is. I feel like sometimes if I were only an actor that I would hate LA and I would hate my life, but it's so nice to be able to be creative uh, in another way. Yeah.
We're talking to Matthew McKilligan, who is a star of the um, Jim Hansen film called You're Killing Me, currently running on Vimeo On Demand. We'll be right back with more of Matthew right after this message. You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Okay, we are back. We're back. Um, We're talking with Matthew McKelligan, who's an actor. And I did say he's in... You're killing me, which she is, but that is not running on Vimeo On Demand. I strike that. It's currently in film festivals across the country, and hopefully it will be able to be accessible through um, TV or um, DVD sometime soon. But until then, you have to try and check it out on one of the film festivals. But he is in Eastsiders, which happens to be a web series on Vimeo. On demand. There you go. Now I got that in. But we're going to continue our conversation with Matthew McKelligan. But you've got some great projects going on. I mean, not to mention this movie, which is, you know, also being kind of um, um, labeled as being the next gay horror um, classic, you know, campy classic film. Something probably, you know, Peaches Christ might even be very happy to... um, to add to her collection of, of films, um, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar. With, I don't know if you're familiar with Peaches Christ. Oh yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, so, um, so, um, so that's kind of interesting. But then you know, of course, East Siders, which is um, an award-winning web series. But you've been into some other things with you know um, James Franco's film, The Interior Leather Bar. Um, which yeah. I understand it's g- getting picked up by Netflix after it's run in the theaters. So that's cool. Yeah. You know, yeah, that was a that was a fun random project. I, when we all showed up, none of us knew it was ever going to be even a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it was going to be a short film, and it was going to be one of his university kind of projects mm-hmm. or exhibits. And then they ended up shooting extra footage and turned it into a movie. But um, yeah, that was a random project. But Very random. Yeah, but just the fact that it's a James Franco thing, you know, definitely the exposure for you is yeah. going to be, you know, is is great. And so I'm just thinking that as as these things start, um, as you start getting all these different exposure in all these different areas, web series, comedy film, um, you know, the James Franco project, that whole thing about being an architectural designer may may have to go away. Yeah, it may, <laughs> and I am fine with that. Um, <laughs> I it really stresses me out. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's good days and there's bad days for both acting and design. So 
it's it's fine. I will follow my gut and follow whatever naturally unfolds. Um, who wouldn't want to just be an actor? Well, I think I think <laughs> it know? is fun. I think it is fun for for us to ha- uh, be able to play out some of our fantasies or just to get out of our own skin sometimes. And, you know, acting definitely does that um, for people who, you know, kind of like that. I, we're, I, think, I think as an actor, you, you have the fortunate thing is actually tapping into all the layers that we as humans are. And as we live normalized, we very rarely get a chance to do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, we yeah. recently here did a parody, ver- or we had a parody production of Facts of Life done here in San Francisco with drag queens, and um, and I know that Mindy Cohen is in in um, in the in the film you're telling me, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I've always loved her, and I know she's a huge supporter of LGBTQ community and has been in several independent um, gay comedy films. How was it working with her? Uh, She was wonderful. I mean, she was pretty much exactly as you would expect her to be. She's got that cute, like, high-pitched voice, Mm -hmm. and you... It it instantly disarms you. Um, (laughs) It's so... It's so funny to see someone like that who is eternally kind of a child based on her, her notoriety for yeah. of life. Yeah. And now here she is, you know, much older. And with that, like, squeaky high-pitched voice, it suddenly turns her into, like, the sweet, like, sweet older woman, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's really weird. But um, she was hilarious. And she was telling us all these stories of, being on set of Facts of Life and like when Nancy Reagan was touring the set um, and she she, uh, she she kind of went for blood after Nancy Reagan like asking her why her and Ron weren't you know contributing more into AIDS research because she grew up in New York mm-hmm. and she had a lot of gay family friends mm-hmm. um, and so she actually got escorted off set because of that, <laughs> which I think is so awesome. Always a like, rebel. I like that. She's kind of kind of like your your character, very likable, but can cut your throat at any minute. <laughs> yeah, we actually joked about being a symbol called We're Killing You. Oh gosh, how funny! How and it would be me, me and uh, Mindy. Because the movie ends with the two of us riding off together, mm-hmm. and it's, you don't know if my character murders her or or what happens. Mm-hmm. So we've joked about if we did a sequel, then it'd be she and I would be a double murder team. You kind of be like the Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, <laughs> that would be cute. That would be very It'd cute. be amazing. Now you've also you've also worked with Sherry Vine, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, not directly. We, um, me and Chipay, he's in the movie, and, um, Ron and, who's the fourth? Oh, Sam, mm-hmm. Pancake, who's also in our movie. He plays my therapist. So Sam, Drew, and I, um, we all shot a bunch of shorts that they used for Sherry Vine's show. Yeah, she, which I think, she's living for Yeah, that. they shot her show in New York, I think, right? I think so. I know it was on here, but 
I think they did shoot it in New York as opposed to out in, in La La Land. Yeah, because they shot it there, and then we shot our shorts. We did a bunch of sketches here. Okay. And so that's how it wound up in that show. We were oh, able to do that. Okay. So, yeah. Fabulous, fabulous. It was just us partying, you know, at um, Jim, the same director as the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he, we just all got together one day with some champagne, and we just played around in wigs. So <laughs> it was really fun. <laughs> I bet it was. I bet it was. Well, I I want to you know wish you the best in everything that you're doing. It just seems like you know you know I always joke around um, about Nick Jonas being the man of the fall because he's got two television shows on. He's got a new single coming out. It's like, but then I you know I'm reading up on you and it's like I don't know. He may have some run for his money. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't want to upset cute little like thunder. <laughs> oh well, I don't know about all of that, but uh, but thank you so much for spending some time with me on the phone today. Sure, you know. Well, I'll let you get back to your your rigorous day of you know <laughs> life of a, as an architect and life as an actor and. Um, <laughs> And um, and hopefully you know we'll we'll cross paths at some point in time. Uh, I'm, I'm no doubt. Okay. Okay. Take care. Okay. okay bye bye. That was Matthew McKelligan, who is a star of the comedy, the gay romantic romance comedy horror movie called You're Killing Me, which is currently touring um, film festivals across the world, and um, hopefully will be. Um, seen somewhere on, you know, some of your Netflix or any of your on-demand streaming um, type of things, or maybe DVD. Who knows? That'll be coming soon. But you can catch him on Eastsiders, and that is a web series, an award-winning web series, in its second season on Vimeo On Demand. Well, that wraps up our show. I want to thank John Fisher for being with us, who is currently uh, directing and uh, co-starring in Shakespeare Goes to War, which is a, uh, the rhinoceros, um, the, uh, the Theodore Rhinoceros production, excuse me, a little tongue-tied there, um, production that is currently um, at the Thick House in San Francisco on, in Potrero Hill. So you can check that out. It's currently running on Wednesday through Saturdays for sure, and there are some Tuesdays as well. So check out the website at therhino.org for ticket and days and time schedules. I guess I will see you. Um, I will see you next week. It will be, what, the 15th. Oh, my gosh. Happy. Oh, my. Christmas is coming too soon. You guys take care. Have a good rest of the week, and I'll see you next Sunday. Bye-bye.